being cool wasn't as important to me as being friendly. I thought if I'm going to sit in one of these two camps very like solidly, I would rather be friendly than cool. If I could go back and tell my past self something, research how much psychology there is involved in selling. There is so much more to it than just like person, social media product. There is like layers and layers and layers of psychology underneath it. And when you crack that, you will be onto a winner. Hey, Creative Babe, you may have heard of my guest today, but if not, buckle up. I am excited to welcome Elizabeth Styles, the friendly face in fashion to the Creative Babes Club podcast. Elizabeth is a fashion brand consultant who helps creatives to take their passion seriously so that they can be financially independent and sell without selling their soul. In our conversation, we explore ditching the self-taught narratives and toxic traits and why being kind and making authentic connections is way cooler than being cool. We share our own visibility hang-ups that we experienced at the start of growing our businesses and we even reference selling Sunset and why selling the OC could never, if you know you know. Elizabeth was so generous with her knowledge and experiences, there are so many gems shared. So grab a cuppa, get your notebook or journal at the ready and let's get the conversation flowing. Elizabeth. I'm a fashion brand consultant. So I work with independent brands on their manufacturing, marketing and mindset. And my background is in fashion buying. So I worked for Next, Miss Selfridge and George at Asda. Worked on women's wear jersey mainly at Next and Miss Selfridge, which basically means anything stretchy in your wardrobe. And then when I was at George, I did boys wear, which was so fun, so much more chill than women's wear. You know, all my emails would talking about sloths and dinosaurs, which was great. And then I left Asda to go back into London to work for a supplier. So I was an account manager for about five years, selling into lots of different high street retailers. I really liked the job, but I became a little bit bored, maybe. It just became really easy. And I don't mean that in like a complacent way or like a big-headed way. The job kind of did itself. And I, I just turned 30 basically the old Saturn Returns story of when you get to that point in your life and you think, what am I doing? Where am I going? Even at 32, I think I was, I was one of the oldest people in the office. And I thought, hmm, I can't really, I don't know if I want to stay here much longer. Uh, What's my exit plan? And I knew I wanted to work in fashion, but with more soul and purpose because the fast fashion industry is not like that. I had a bit of an epiphany one day that what if I helped people in fashion who are looking to start out that maybe didn't have a background in fashion and it all started from there. I love that. As a sensitive soul, I really connect with your friendly face in fashion. Why has that been such a conscious intention for you? Was it your previous jobs and roles that have impacted that? Yes. (laughs) When I thought about leaving my job, I had this tiny little notebook that I carried everywhere in my bag. And the friendly face in fashion was the first thing that I ever wrote down in that book. I've got it in this uh, cupboard somewhere. 
And I was like, oh, I don't know. Is that really cheesy? I wanted it to be cool, you know? And then I did this workshop with Lucy Sheridan, you know, the comparison coach, fellow Northern gal. She was basically saying in this workshop, I can't even remember what it was about. It was definitely to do with comparison, but it kind of opened up my eyes that being cool wasn't as important to me as being friendly. I thought if I'm going to sit in one of these two camps, very like solidly, I would rather be friendly than cool. And that's when I sort of thought, okay, I still didn't put it in my bio, but that was like the angle that I went down. And then like a few years later, I thought, oh, bugger it, I'm just going to put it in the bio. And then like everyone jumped on it and was like, this is so lovely. You know, like you saying, I really connect with that. But the reason that I wrote it down in the first place was because when I worked at Miss Selfridge, It is famously the worst year of my life. It was so awful. It was very bitchy. So even on my first day, I got taken around a tour of the office and somebody, the girl who has made my life a living hell, it turned out, and she was very sweet to me on the first day, lured me into a false sense of security. She said, oh, this is the toilet uh, where you go if you need to cry. And I thought, it's my first day? Like, how... I don't know, why are you telling me that I'll need somewhere to cry? Am I going to need somewhere to cry? And I did. (laughs) And then I remember she took me around to this other girl and she was called Naomi. And she went, oh, this is Elizabeth. This is Naomi. And Naomi said, yeah, I saw you earlier. You're really pretty. Like that, but like so aggressive. What? Do you genuinely think that? Or are you like annoyed that you think that? Or is it just a fake thing? Do you say it to everyone? Like what the hell is going on? A couple of hours later, I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to sit down and have my lunch. And I was like, oh, where does everyone go for lunch? And they were like, there's prep around the corner. Like, it was literally like that for one year. It was fucking brutal. (laughs) It was so horrendous. And I know Sarah Galley, who has done your branding at Design Gals on Instagram. She was on my team. So Sarah was like one of the only nice people in that building. Like Sarah and maybe two other girls who basically were about 10 years younger than me and hadn't yet been indoctrinated into this like evil (laughs) dead. So all my friends from Miss Selfridge are like a hell of a lot younger than I am. So yeah, it just kind of spawned from there I mean I've got a whole list of stories as long as my arm about all the dreadful things that happened during that year but I just wanted to show people because I think what happened in that office is what everyone believes working in fashion is like and it's not that is one area and you know I've experienced it lots of other people have but that's not I don't want that to feel like it tarnishes the whole industry and so that's where it came from that is my worst nightmare. I, <laughs> yeah. I physically, my creativity can't flow. I don't feel in the zone. I can't concentrate if I'm not feeling good, if I'm not comfortable. So if I've yeah. got tight jeans on, they're <laughs> coming straight off. I'm going to be in my comfies. And I want to be, I think it's with everyone. We need to be in a space that we feel really seen and heard and comfortable so that we can be creative and share our opinions because it is such a vulnerable thing have people gone into that industry thinking oh I need to be this certain way is it all of like the toxic traits and like devil wears Prada and all these different narratives or is it a bit of both and people are just stressed because they're in this horrible situation 
Yeah, I mean, when sales are bad, the atmosphere gets toxic. So some places are better than others. And I would say, actually, the frumpier the brand, the nicer the people. (laughs) Because there's just less pressure on the brand for it to be cool. And so if you're not necessarily following in anybody's footsteps, there is always this constant battle for being the first. And there's, it's, it's really like complex, really, because it's like, okay, well, if you're the first, you're the coolest. But to be the coolest, there is a lot of pressure. But like you said, when there is pressure, you can't create that fun environment in order to come up with loads of brilliant new ideas. And then when you're working at a slightly slower brand, for example, somewhere like Next, they're pretty much just following in the footsteps of someone like Zara. You know, they see what Zara does. A couple of months later, they'll do it. If anyone this works at Next, they'll probably kill me for saying that, but it's true. Like there's just boards <laughs> and samples of Zara product absolutely everywhere. And then, I don't know, it's almost just, you don't have to be the first person. You can just sort of like ride off the back of what everyone else is doing. And it's just a bit easier because there isn't that sort of like trend pressure but what's also funny is that next and asda our average buys were anywhere between like 10 and 100,000 units and at miss selfridge it was between like 300 and 3,000 units and so from a financial perspective the pressure was actually loads less but the yeah it was that trend sort of element or also the fact that it's run by a bit of monster in philip green Yes. And that like bullying culture just gets filtered down. So it is very much like the toxic work environment that comes from the top. I bet you've not only experienced such horrible situations, but heard horror stories like in from the grapevine and with the clients you mentor and coach as well. Something that's really important, not only for how I work, but how I want other people to feel. I want people to show up and come as they are. I don't want anyone to feel like they need to have a fake front with me or pretend to be really energetic if they're feeling really crappy because that only makes the burnout more inevitable we're all about embracing the ebbs and the softness and the humanness that we have as creatives and business owners and these more soft more human traits they are often deemed as either a weakness or they're not associated with money making and undoing that process can be really tricky. How did you navigate coming out of that real toxic fashion industry and starting to mould a creative money maker lifestyle that was authentic to you? I would say that the the worst year was in 2013. I actually went for a job interview at ASOS straight after that and I didn't get it because they said my confidence wasn't there. They said I wouldn't have been able to cope. And that was a real wake up call to me because I was like, I'm not that person. Like I am a confident person. And actually you're seeing like a shell of myself after having been at that place for a year. So that gave me a bit of a rocket up my bum to get myself back on track. And so going to Asda, it was one of the nicest places I've ever worked. You know, the people I'm still in touch with now, they were so friendly, so lovely, lovely bosses, the lot, you know, I really did enjoy that. And the only reason I left was because I got approached to leave through this other job. 
And then that job, I was really nervous about going back into London because that was my only experience of working in London. I was like, no, I don't like it. And he was like, just come down, you know, it will be different. It was, you know, I stayed for five years and I loved that as well. In that final job, the sales manager role, on my first day there, it had its own like toxic traits. There was no like HR in the company or anything. It was very much like a small business, the way it was run. But I took so much from that job because it was a sales role. And so you sit down, you get given an address book full of buyers. And he just says, off you go, you know, like fill your boots, fill your diary, book in some meetings, chat to the designers, take some samples in and you go from there. And it was a really good stepping stone, I think, from like a really corporate environment to being completely freelance. That job that I did for five years was sales driven role in a quite flexible environment. And so, you know, if my diary was quiet and I didn't have anything to present on a Monday in our sales meetings, it's a bit like in selling selling sunsets, you know, when they gather around on the sofa and say like, what have you got on? And uh, Jason and his brother, I can't remember his name, say, um, Brett, they say, you know, what, what have you got on at the moment? What have you got on the books? And they all have to say that they've sold a house. That's what these meetings were a bit like. And so very casual and informal, but still what are you doing? You know, where is the money coming from? Are you bringing in some money? And so I think it was that role that really helped me transition into thinking, if my diary is quiet, it's my job to fill it. And I really took that into working for myself. First of all, bloody love selling sunset. Bloody love it. I need to catch up on that as well. Selling the OC is just not the same. I it's not the same. No. It's a filler. I'll watch it, but it's yeah. just, yeah. It's just, totally it is agree. a filler in between the Selling Sunset seasons. There's too many characters. 100%. There's too many characters called Alex, for example. <laughs> but we can save time. Yeah. That's an there. episode and a conversation for another day. <laughs> I know. I relate to that in my own way because I know that I have felt and have been told, I've experienced all of like the stereotypical starving artist and through my own journey of coming out of my creative degree and then deciding what I wanted to do with it. I knew I wanted to be self-employed, but I didn't know what that was going to look like. And even really to this day, I'll get like the the subtle hints or the not so subtle comments of people implying that being a creative isn't a realistic job. Or maybe if it is going well, it won't last long. So like what if type of vibes. It takes a lot of mindset strength to focus on your passion. And when your address book is empty, you've got nothing in the diary. You're the person who is making the aligned moves and making the connections. And a lot of it is on you, if not everything. A lot of the times when we hear those like stereotypes or we get other people's stuff put onto us, that can be really challenging. And I know that's something that I think most creatives and business owners will experience at some point or other. Yeah. When was the moment you realised that actually this is possible for me to be financially independent? Because I know that's something you're very passionate about. I know that that's something that you help your clients and the brands you work with achieve. Mm. What was that journey for you? There's two answers, really. One of them that came to mind is a bit of a random story. But when I was at school, uh, we had a parents' evening and I went to a very, very academic girls' school. And like, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a big 
bitch. But some of the girls at this school didn't even feel like human. They were like robots. They were so... If you had geeks at your school, these were like on another level clever, you know? I didn't even understand the words that they were saying sometimes. And they had all these straight A's. And basically at this parents' evening, I was really nervous that my dad was going to be like, why can't you be like them? And what he actually said was, you're going to be successful, Elizabeth, because you've got so much personality. Those girls will be successful in their own right, but your success is basically going to look different. They're going to end up in research and be really happy that they're in research, but you're going to do something completely different that will also be successful. And I don't know why it's stuck in my head, but it obviously like really meant something to me that he didn't expect me to be like that because obviously at school you're always just striving for an A and to be like the best in class and I was never going to be that like it was impossible for me to reach this level that these girls were at so that was definitely one thing to think okay I can still be successful as I am and then maybe there's also the element of my mum telling me when I was younger that I am going to be financially independent. She, it was almost like a non-negotiable because she isn't. And so she just said, you know, you're the only girl I've got. You've got to do me proud, you know, like you don't end up in the same position that I'm in where I am financially independent on a man. You're never going to do that, just so you know. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then later in life, probably more specific to your question, I read a book called How to Be a Badass at Making Money. I actually used to listen to it because the audiobook is really good. I love her voice and her accent. It's very like motivating. And I used to listen to it to and from Camden, like the sales job, when I had this sort of like epiphany that I was going to leave. And I remember exactly where I was on this walk outside St Pancras. And she said, when women leave their job and their financial security, they automatically assume that they're going to earn less. The reason they earn less is because they assume they're going to earn less. And nobody even considers the fact that you could earn more. Because what you're essentially doing is removing the lid from what you're even capable of earning. Back then in that job, I was earning £50,000. And I thought that was the most amount of money I'd ever been paid. How am I going to do that? And, you know, there's all these internal things around a man has always paid me, you know, like the owner of Next is a man, the owner of Miss Selfridge is a man, the owner of Asda is a man, the owner of this company. Like it's always been a man giving me money. I didn't really have any role models in my life who were women who earned their own money apart from this one woman in this book who I've never met. And I was like, oh my God, I could actually do this on my own. What if I were to earn more? And it was so hard. (laughs) I didn't earn more for like, I don't know, two years. But I always had it in the back of my mind that it was possible. And for the first maybe 18 months, I actually had a part-time job as well, where I was freelancing for a factory out in China, still being a sales manager, but from on a freelance basis, because he was like looking to grow his business in the UK. And I will also say with that, that job came about from me telling, like making a real racket about leaving my job. You know, I put it on LinkedIn being like, I've left now. I'm open to opportunities. Um, you know, I'm looking for work. This is what I'm doing. 
And one of my old colleagues got in touch and said, oh, well, actually, this factory in China is looking for a sales manager freelance. Would you be up for doing that? And I was like, yeah. So I think if you want work, like, don't be afraid to shout about it. So, yeah, that definitely, like, helped me stabilise the income. And it was only after about 18 months of, like, sowing all of these seeds at networking events and meeting people and reaching out and cold messaging. And was I able to then, like, start to see that steady income. We expect the flowers to be blooming before we nurture them. There's a real... There's a real realisation for business owners because I think you see all the Instagram posts and the highlight reels and you think that it's going to be a real linear sort Mm -hmm. of like direction and it's just not the case. Also, something that I really took from what you were just sharing with us there is that there's a real note of when you're at school or in education, you have a certain set and criteria and expectation of what success is and what you're aiming towards like you're going to do these exams and then you'll apply for this college or uni and it was all very lined up lined up for you and then once you are in a job and you're working for a company or for another person or another male boss you are used to reading certain like tasks and things that you do day to day. And that's a very, it's like you're told, this is what I expect from you. This is what you're striving for. So then going freelance, going self-employed and really taking the reins on your creative destiny, if you like, that can feel really daunting. And I was speaking to someone the other day about not only being the boss of your business, but acting like the boss, yeah. treating yourself like you're the boss and yeah. treating yourself like in a, a nice way. boss as well. Exactly. Like we were saying earlier, that isn't toxic, that is in a real safe, creative space where you can share your ideas and connect with people who get it and all of the brilliant um, perks that come with that. But I know that it's very much, I know for me, and I, I don't know if you'd like to add to this. For me, it was a real learning on the process job uh-huh. and realize what worked, what didn't. And things will have a natural progression and evolution, just like we do as humans as well. Yeah. And I I remember at the, at the beginning, I was almost like ashamed to say that I had this part time job. And it was maybe only like, two years ago that I told people that I even had it because I was like it feels easier to share it in hindsight but yeah it is that speed that you're that you think other people are working at because that's what you see online you know you see you know those videos where it's like here's my year in 60 seconds and it looks like they had the most incredible year and I'm like oh my god how have you had a year like that I've only been to center parks or something for my holiday but actually what is that like 60 seconds out of how many however many seconds a year is that's all we, what you see online and I know it's a cliche and we're told to not believe everything that we see but I do want to share more about what those first few months really looked like in you know earning your own money it, was, it is a slog and it's hard and it's tiring and I was working all hours of the day and I'm always really hovering on the fence between you know looking after yourself definitely 
But sometimes I think that message to women gets pushed a little bit too far because you do have, there is no bones about it. You have to work really, really hard if you want to earn a lot of money. There is no shortcuts to that. And so short periods of, you know, short bursts of time, I work my socks off and, you know, it pays off. But I also don't want to sound like a hustle, hustle mania being like, you know, you've got to work really hard to make loads of money. It's, it's so hard because that is true. Yeah, 100%. It's in sections. That's probably the way I try and look at it. So when I do a course launch, for example, you know, for two weeks, I'm probably not going to go to the gym as much as I would. And I'm probably not going to be as good with what I eat. And I probably do go to bed a bit too late and get up a bit too early and jump straight at my desk and don't do my morning routine and stuff. But then once it closes, I'll probably go on holiday for a week and not do anything. And so then it's more in chunks. I think just like the energy ebbs and flows and the creativity ebbs and flows, our routines will, just like you were touching on there. And I think it's very human to fall out of routine or to do something too much or too less. But I, I completely resonate with that balance of hard work, but also being very, again, kind to yourself. And it's really interesting when you were sharing how you didn't bring up having your part-time job. Towards the beginning of Creative Babes Club for me, so this is back in 2019, started the Instagram page, sitting in Nando's, thought, I'm miserable, let's go for it. I've been sitting on this idea for a year or so, now's the time. And my thing was that, and I know you've spoke about this before online, is that I would be like, we are doing this. <laughs> yeah. We are doing that. And that was a real habit to get out of for me because I think I had in my head, well, Creative Babes Club, it's a club and it's more than one person and people will think I'm more professional if they think if there's a big team behind me or, you know, whatever was going through my mind at the time. So that was a thing for me. It was like, once I decided, and I think it was a good like eight, nine months into it, I decided to show my face on a selfie on the grid. I was like, oh God, they're all going to think I'm a fraud. <laughs> it was a real like mindset wobble moment. So that was one of my experiences with that. But I know that you're the visibility queen. You help people be more visible online and In a similar vein, something we've discussed before is that shy girl narrative. I was just about to say, I hope she brings this up. (laughs) I won't speak for you, obviously, but for me, I had a personal aha moment during one of your courses with Sophie French back in 2021. And it was the self-belief sessions and you and Sophie were talking about money and narratives And all of this was whirling in my head. And then I realized that I was holding on to this past version of myself. I was very shy as a child and growing up, I had a lot of anxiety. But over time, that shyness faded. And then I just became my authentic self, who is introverted and loves to connect with people who are on the same wavelength. But I am very much an introverted kind of gal. Mm. But 
Yeah, my aha moment. I was like, oh my God, I'm worrying about what so-and-so at school will think of me. And maybe they'll think I'm being fake because I'm the shy girl and all this type of thing. And I was stuck in that self-caught narrative for a very long time. And I still sometimes get caught and have to be like, no, we're not doing that anymore. Mm. How did you find your groove with that? Oh my God, where do I begin? I've got two narratives, I think. One is the, definitely, I was very shy growing up, you know, even up till uni. I don't know if people would believe me, but I'm like, I promise you it's true. <laughs> like my cheeks would go bright red and they still do sometimes now, you know, if I need to do any public speaking or even if I just speak to somebody new in Sainsbury's, like they can flare up and that makes me really self-conscious and I was, I always say that I was the popular girl's best friend at school. That was like my role <laughs> in the, in, in the class. And so I was never center of attention. I was always just very much in the background. You know, I didn't kiss a boy probably until I was like 16. I, my, my hair hadn't controlled my curls, you know, my frizz was everywhere, got big teeth and, you know, I was quite short. And I don't know, I was just always very much in the background. So then to put myself at it to be, you know, like name myself, my Instagram is my name and this is me. And that I totally resonate with what you said about it feeling fake because you're the girl who is quiet and just kind of goes with the flow and joins along with the group and you don't really drive anything forward you're I don't know you're kind of just like part of the furniture or something I don't know what people think about me and I never will but that was what I believed that they believed and then the other half of it was that I always had a cool job, you know, to say I worked in fashion, but I had very much like linked my self-worth almost to the brands that I had worked with. So when I first went out on my own, I was like, I'm Elizabeth, but I've also worked for Next and I've worked for myself Ridge and I've worked for this, 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 you know, and I worked in a really cool office with really cool people. And that was sort of something that used to come out as well. And I was always worried about what those girls would think of me sort of later in life that you know lip syncing on video or introducing yourself or you know chatting to camera wasn't cool I was like what will those cool girls like think of me and then you just think why do you care I don't know and I think once you know you almost need to do it to see the results and that will give you the motivation to carry on because when you put your post up of your picture I'm sure you got like the most incredible response and it was probably one of your top performing posts of all time and you think okay people do like this I was just in my head and then so it gives you the confidence to do it again. Mm, I've found similarly that having my evidence bank of things that I thought I would never do or couldn't do or the dream things I dreamt of, but I thought um, when I'm, you know, X enough or Y enough or I've achieved this, that's when I'll do it. All of those moments, whether it be sending an email, something really day-to-day or speaking on a panel in front of an audience, no matter how big or small the evolution is, having that like I say, evidence that's really confidence boosting. And it would be really interesting to hear other people's situations where they've felt similarly, because I think it will be a real like common thing, especially for people who were shy or have been painted to be a certain type of person or do a certain type of thing. It's like we go off what other people brand us rather than what we are all about and what you know, we're sharing and doing day to day. 
Yeah, and you're allowed to change. And, you know, even if it was vice versa, that you were really loud at school and actually it was it was all a bit of an act and actually you are a bit quieter and you don't like being around people so much, that's okay too. You're allowed to evolve as a person. You don't have to stay the same person that you were when you were 15. It's just when you were 15, you had so many emotions. Like you say, you're branded with that at a certain stage. And you just feel like all those emotions are going to come back if you go back to where you were. It's a very vulnerable thing to know, oh, well, they knew that part of me. Um, And that could feel very personal and it can feel really daunting. feel fake as well to show up in a way that is different to how people perceive you but actually feels really good to you. Mm, yeah. And thank God I'm not the same person I was when I was <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> yeah. You, funnily enough, me and my friend went out for pizza the other day and this group of girls came and sat behind us. There was maybe like 10 of them and they were about 10. And they were so funny listening to them. And half of me just wanted to go and join the table. And like, because she was like, right, everybody, who is the funniest boy in the year? Go. <laughs> and I was like, what a fun conversation. <laughs> and then you, when you look at them and you really look into their eyes and they're all so nervous about what they're going to say around the table and they're all side-eyeing each other to move and sitting up straight or pushing their boobs out or what, I don't know. And it was just thought, there's so many thoughts going through your brain. I couldn't bear to go back to that. But There's such a naivety. And I know, I personally think with every next chapter and evolution that we have, there is a certain naivety to what's coming next. Thank that- God. If we knew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, people say to me, like, would you have a fashion brand? And I was like, no, I know too much. I know yeah. about all of the things that could go wrong. And the fact that you don't know that is what's going to make your brand succeed because otherwise you wouldn't do it. Exactly. And trusting that instinct, that creative gut feeling to be like, this feels really right. I don't quite know how it's all going to pan out, but this is something that I need to do and it needs to be out there. And I'm really excited about it 100%. because I know that having that, that's what really helped me to start Creative Babes Club. And I know from talking to other creatives, that's what helps them to really strive forward. Because like we say, if we knew all the ins and outs and the crappy parts and how tricky it would be we would put it off and put it off and it would never happen yeah and I'm sure if I asked one of the biggest brands that I worked with is somebody called Lucy and Yak and they actually came from a car sales background and if I said you know I'm going to get into car sales and get you know like make loads of commission they'd be like no don't do it because of x y and z I'm like oh yeah I don't know maybe I still want to do it like I don't know you don't really believe somebody when they tell you do they because you've got that desire to do it as well and I don't I mean to be honest I don't really have a desire to start a fashion brand I want to help other people do theirs you know that's I don't know how the world goes around because we've got different things that you're working towards. Yeah, exactly. I know when I started showing my face online and not even just online, like talking to people, like strangers on the street, complimenting the court or saying, oh, I've read that book, whatever it is. Yeah. That's not only mega confidence building for yourself and it's 
creating those lovely connections. But it's, again, that evidence bank. And when I was bringing that humanness and my authentic self and showing up however I'm feeling in my energy, whether I'm feeling more calm that day or I'm more excited and chatty and, you know, really being authentic and honouring that in me, that's when the people I wanted to connect with, the types of conversations I wanted to have, the type of people I wanted to meet and explore that's when they are drawn to you. You put out the energy that will be received. Being, it is a bit vulnerable. I keep using that word, but it's also really uplifting to be your true self, no matter whether you're doing a post online or talking to people at a networking event. That's when you're going to really feel the boost of that confidence, I feel. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest thing that has changed your confidence oh I do think it is practice and proving to myself that I can and every like I've mentioned every little like conversation or I've reached out to someone or just you know throwing an idea out there and it's well received they're all really affirming to me and it's not even like in a vein or you know more like um Oh, what's the word when you want validation from other people? That's it. It's more so like you have things that are needing to be out there and to be shared and people want to connect with you on this level. It's been really, the proof has been in the pudding that once I have been showing my introverted side, my sensitive side, like I'm an empath, um, all these different types of things, that's when my business has thrived whether it be financially or the type of people I'm connecting with or the opportunities that come to my door rather than pitching to other people, that's when I think I've really reflected and thought, you know what, I'm on the right track here, this is working. Yeah, like when you said earlier, I'm going to wait until X to do Y is actually the other way around. Yeah. be Y by doing X. What does selling without selling your soul look like to you? I worked in sales in that job that helped me prep for this job. I was a sales manager for five years. And again, that's another thing that I learned probably to take into this role was how to sell. And it's seeing people as humans and not as walking credit cards, basically. Mm -hmm. I think people belittle the amount of people that are showing up for them and then they don't show up to those people with respect there is so much in it around trust and respect and let's start with the audience thing you've got 100 people viewing your stories but normally you have 300 people viewing your stories go away and google what 100 people look like and know what your conversion rate actually needs to be. Okay, you want to convert one of those people to be a member of your membership or to be a one-to-one client. There is so much value in that audience of people. They're your super fans. So, I mean, if your views have dropped, that's a great time to sell in a way to those people that are still showing up for you and showing those people respect asking people you know if you are to reach out in the dms asking people if they want to hear more about your thing rather than telling them that you you know what your thing is i would also say back to the respect thing 
his respect needs to be earned. And sometimes people think that, well, there's 300 people watching my stories. Why don't you just buy it? You know, surely somebody should just buy it. Why are people, you say you like it, why aren't you buying it? And they, that's like the energy that they're sort of showing up with, that they just expect people to be buying things. And it annoys me because I just think, well, no. Have you told them why it would change their life or improve their life, perhaps, or improve their day? Have you told them the story about how it came to life? Have you told them the details and the benefits of the product or the service? Have you listed out not only what they receive, but have you shown them how it's going to arrive? Have you shown them testimonials about how other people have received it in the past and what their comments and thoughts and stories were around that? I think sometimes people just talk about what it is that they do, but they don't talk about the why, the where, the how, the when, the who, or all the other stuff around it. They just talk about the product, but not around the product too. I've got a podcast as well called The Fashion Brand Clinic, which you have been on. Um, It was a really good episode. And the very, very first episode was with a woman called Jane Shepherdson, who was the uh, like creative lead buyer for Topshop back in the 90s and early noughties. She's like a bit of a high street legend, but um, undercover, you know, like the, the behind the scenes version of Mary Portas, like they worked at Topshop together at the same time. And she said, one of the reasons I was so successful or the brand was so successful is because I showed my customers so much respect. And it really stuck with me that it's true. You know, I've worked at brands before and they'll go, oh, just put it out. She'll never notice or just whack that out. They won't care. They do care. They do know. And they see straight through it. And so if you are approaching your product with that sort of energy, switch it up. I think it's always interesting to think about how you shop and how you consume content and what you appreciate from the type of people and conversations that you enjoy to see, watch, listen. I'll think, oh, well, you know, when the mindset funks come in, no one wants to see that or, you know, whatever it is, all the crappy excuses your mind comes up with. And it's like, but I love watching that. And that's the reason why I bought this or I went on this course or I invited this person to go here. It's just, I think the, again, the fast paced nature of especially the online space, I think it's very easy to forget that we are humans and we survive on connection. And if you think way back in the day, we all we had was our community and nothing's changed. I know from a business owner and a creative, from that standpoint, if I didn't have my creative circle, everything would go downward spiraling really fast. I would be a hot mess. There was actually one woman who bought my course recently and I bought her product. And I said, In one of my courses, I basically talk about saying, you know, you've got to talk about the product, but you've also got to talk around the product as well. And people are always really sceptical about the around the product bit. You know, you're saying, talk about my dog. What's my dog got to do with my dress? And this woman, she's called Lauren. We've both spoken about having a dog. 
We've both spoken about watching trash TV. We've both spoken about being obsessed with Gemma Collins. We've both spoken about the books that we've read. And um, so I put a book up and she was like, oh, I've read that as well. And she's like, have you tried this one? And I was like, oh, no, I've not. You know, I've tried it, went back. Oh, I loved it. Oh, I wasn't so good, you know. And so we've been having these conversations back and forth. And then we've bought each other's thing because... She basically sells these reusable period pads called Wear Em Out pads on Instagram. She's great. Go and check her out. She's really funny. And I thought, I wonder if I didn't know that she had a dog and I didn't know that she liked Gemma Collins and I didn't know that she liked the same books as me and I didn't know that she had the same sense of humor as me. I wouldn't have bought from her. And so that's why it's important to talk around the product as well as about the product because it's those things that will make you not only buy from that person but also recommend that person you know here's me chatting about her on a podcast but also go back and buy again and again and again if I could go back and tell my past self something is research how much psychology there is involved in selling there is so much more to it than just like person social media product there is like layers and layers and layers of psychology underneath it and when you crack that you will be onto a winner. Another thing that I've been living for in your content and online at the moment is your Harsh Truth series. Uh, yes. But sometimes we just need a good kick up the bum <laughs> and Elizabeth's here to help. I am. It's been a while since I put a Harsh Truth up, but I did put one up today. And the one today, let me read it out. I don't want to get it wrong. Funny enough, it's since I went to go and see Trini in person, Trini Woodall from What Not To Wear. She wrote a book called Fearless. As a side note, I also did this in-person spa day down in Brighton. And one of the girls there was like, I feel like I've not seen this side of you. And because I was like ranting about something, can't remember what it was. And I was like, I am quite opinionated, but I let like the woke crowd get to me massively. Like I'm... I feel like, you know, I'm pushing 40 soon and I'm like, you know, if I say these things, is it going to like offend somebody? And I just think I'm I'm really passionate about it. And it does go back to that being your authentic self, doesn't it? So harsh truth. If you want 10 sales a day, you need 500 to 1000 people per day visiting the website. Harsh truth. Your engagement is crap because your content is crap. Out. <laughs> Past truth. If your product imagery is bad quality, then people will think your product is bad quality. It's true. There is no beating around it. And on the engagement one, I wrote this whole caption on it that basically said, if you think the algorithm hates you, announce that you get engaged and see what happens because you are, your, your engagement will come back in no time. Nobody puts up an engagement ring photo and gets zero likes, do they? Mm, so true. All about the content. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. What's on your vision board? What's coming up for you? Professional life, personal life, well-being. Uh, what do you want to put out to the universe? What do I want? My my vision board's by my bed. I'm trying to like think what's on it now. It was very much around like creative collaborations. That's on there. Working, so cringe, but like working smarter, not harder. 
I've really seen that in like the past couple of months. I was selling these courses and I do still love selling the courses, but the way I was selling them, I'm going to like change that up a little bit. I was just starting to like annoy myself in the way I was selling them. I can't imagine how annoying I was to other people. Changing up my style was definitely one of them. And, you know, not even changing it, but just like really getting to know what I want to wear and what makes me feel like me. And I want to decorate my bedroom as well because it's like grey walls, grey carpet, grey bedding, grey everything. And it's like the most uninspiring place. It's very relaxing, but it's very uninspiring. A lot of juicy things there. (laughs) Oh, it's been so wonderful to chat with you. And I always say there's always so many gems and pearls of wisdom. So I'm really grateful for your generosity with that today. Oh, thanks for having me on. You put you came up with loads of interesting questions and I feel like we spoke about lots of things that I don't normally talk about. What does being a creative babe mean to you? If you took away my creativity, I'd be so it would just be grey. It would be like, you know, the beginning of the Wizard of Oz film where it's all black and white and then she steps out and it's all in colour and there's sparkles and there's the yellow brick road and there's like the fairy princess dress and it's happy. It's what brings joy in my life everything that's related to creativity is definitely joy-led 